0: Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 Festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Israeli strategic consultant Yossi Alfa's experience as an intelligence official for Mossad, Director of the Jaffe Centre for Strategic Studies at Tel Aviv University, and Special Advisor to then-Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak at the 2000 Camp David Summit, makes him well-placed to analyse the challenges facing Israel and the policies it currently operates. He has documented his views in two recently published books, Periphery, Israel's Search for Allies in the Middle East, and No End of Conflict, Rethinking Israel-Palestine. Yossi speaks to Jeremy Rose. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: Uh, Greetings. Kia ora. Welcome. Uh, I've got a couple of housekeeping things we've got to do first. I think you've already been told you've got to turn off your cell phones. Um, If a cell phone goes off, it's going to be confiscated and given to the Red Cross This, uh, at the end of this session, we'll have uh, 10 or 15 minutes for questions. I'll say at now that um, it really is for questions, so if people have long political statements they want to make, they can save those for after the event. Um, the session is called From the Centre. We were just discussing it, we're not quite sure why. <laughs> um, welcome Yossi Alpha. People have come to hear you, not me, so I'll I'll be brief. New Zealand historian um, Michael King was fond of saying that New Zealand history is is as interesting as anybody's history. It may be short, it's just sped up. When we think about the Israel-Palestine conflict, it's even shorter. Today, 68 years ago, Ben Gurion declared... Israel estate. The Palestinians refer to it as the Nakba. A hundred years ago, Britain and France came up with the sykes pico agreement, which divided the region up. A year after that, I think, the Balfour Declaration was signed, which promised the Jews' a state. And one or two years after that, New Zealand troops invaded Gaza and the story, in some senses, begins there. I think, but we're going to talk to Yossi. Yossi's actually seen and been involved in a huge amount of that history. From a young man when he first went to Israel, he has worked for Mossad. He's a former director of the Yaffe Center for Strategic Studies in Tel Aviv. Was a prime. It was a, an advisor to the Prime Minister Ehud Barak at the 2000 Camp David Summit, and he's the author of two recently published books, Periphery, Israel's Search for Allies in the Middle East, and No End of Conflict, Rethinking Israel-Palestine. So, a big welcome to Yossi, please. (laughs) Yossi, you grew up in Washington, D.C. What... And how did you end up in
2: Israel? How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll take the brief version today. Well, the brief version is I certainly grew up in a very political city uh, and became interested in national and international politics at a very young age. Did not grow up in a Zionist household uh, and went through the usual student uh, identity crisis in my time at Columbia University. And then uh, came upon the Eichmann trial, uh, we're talking 61. Uh, and uh, one of the purposes of, one of Ben-Gurion's purposes in not only capturing Eichmann but in staging the trial in front of the entire international media and community uh, was to send mes- a message to people like me. And I got the message, the message I got was one of secular, national, uh, Jewish identity. And uh, as I observed the Eichmann trial, I became for the first time aware of myself as a, a Jew in the national sense. And that Israel is the expression of, of, uh, of Jewish, modern Jewish nationalism, Zionism. And I've been, i uh, as a young student, uh, felt a very strong a sense of obligation to do something for the Jewish people in the aftermath of the Holocaust uh, and made what I can only call, a, uh, in the Kierkegaard sense, uh, an existential decision that from here in I'm an Israeli. Uh, rather unusual Zionist story. In my case, it worked, it stuck. I simply declared this is my identity and this is where I want to live and I have to devote a sizable portion of my life to doing to some kind of national service in the in the jewish national sense so you made aliyah you went
1: up as they say in hebrew and took up the right of return which jews
2: everywhere have to go and live in israel we don't call it the right of return we call it the law of return and you the palestinians call their Their demand uh, of the 1948 refugees is called the right of return. And we'll come to that later. You get to Israel, and I think we'll, we'll
1: start with actually the first of your books, The Periphery Doctrine. And I don't think you've heard of it. Most of us won't have heard of it. But at that point, you haven't heard of it. You're working for Mossad. Tell me a bit about how you heard about it and your involvement.
2: Okay, I heard about it. Before the Mossad, because I did my military service in IDF military intelligence and found myself in a unit that liaised with the Mossad. Uh, and uh, in Israeli strategic and intelligence circles at the time, the the, the term periphery doctrine, torata peripheria, was uh, very well known, but not beyond that. In fact, those were days when nobody knew what the Mossad was even uh, uh, far away from the spotlights of uh, of the media today, uh, uh, we're, te- we're I'm going to illustrate with uh, just a few uh, slides uh, from my book Periphery. We're talking about the 50s and 60s uh, when uh, Israel is very isolated uh, regionally and internationally. It has very few friends, uh, and uh, I, this is the challenge to explain this to New Zealanders. Uh, we are surrounded by a ring of hostile Arab countries, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, that almost daily preach the need to destroy the state of Israel. Uh, we have come out of two wars with those countries, the forty-eight War of Independence, uh, what the Palestinians call the Nakba, uh, and the 1956 uh, Suez campaign, uh, or Sinai campaign, and uh, We are absolutely convinced, and I think with good reason from an intelligence standpoint, that the Arabs want another round. Uh, And and it's at this time, mid-50s, that David Ben-Gurion, who was truly a strategic genius, came up with four grand strategies for dealing with this isolation. Uh, one of them, uh, and they're, by the way, they're all in some way, shape, or form valid today. One is to find a great power ally. At the time, it was Britain or France. After 67, it became the United States. In 1948, it was the Soviet Union, uh, which helped arm Israel in order to, for us to survive the war. Uh, a second uh, was a, to a mass ingathering of the exiles, uh, at the expense of even uh, our armed readiness, uh, Ben-Gurion devoted huge budgets to bringing in the survivors of the Holocaust, or bringing Jews in from the uh, where they were beleaguered in Arab countries in order to reach a kind of strategic critical, demographic critical mass. Uh, a third was uh, developing a nuclear deterrent. And a fourth was the periphery doctrine. And the idea was to reach beyond the surrounding, the ring of hostile Arab countries beyond us, to what, from an Israelocentric standpoint, after all, I, I assume New Zealand is in the center of your world maps, I don't know, does it work that way here? <laughs> uh, I mean, most countries put themselves in the center of the maps that, they, that kids learn in, about in school. I don't know how you do it, but. Uh, we just fall off the bottom. Hmm? <laughs> We're falling off the bottom. Okay. We're, so from an Israel-centric standpoint, there's a hostile ring of Arab countries around us, and uh, and we look to the periphery of the Middle East where we see non-Arab countries or non-Muslim countries, uh, non-Arab uh, for uh, Iran and Turkey, non-Muslim, for example, Ethiopia, Sudan in the mid-'50s hadn't yet decided it was an Arab country, uh, and we look to them to set up alliances, because they were also afraid of militant Arab nationalism of the uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, variety. He was threatening them as well, and they were prepared to work with us, Uh, usually clandestinely, which is why this job was assigned to the Mossad, uh, rather than, the, let's say, the foreign ministry, which... uh, we never had full diplomatic relations with is the Shah's Iran, for example. So the Mossad representative was the real ambassador. Uh, so uh, the beginning of the initial periphery doctrine uh, was the uh, Northern Triangle, which was called Trident, which lasted from the mid 50s until the fall of the Shah in 79, uh, and uh, a Southern Triangle, which, out, which Sudan dropped out of very quickly, uh, But both of which left a very significant impression on our Arab neighbors because they saw they had not succeeded in isolating us. We were not alone. With the passage of time, there developed a a more easily defined southern periphery. Uh, There's a civil war in Yemen right now. One of my first jobs as a young first lieutenant in IDF intelligence before I even joined the Mossad Uh, was to check to make sure all the Hebrew markings had been erased from uh, weapons and ammunitions, ammunition that we were dropping to the the Yemeni royalists who are today the Houthis. Today they're allied with Iran. Then they were were allied with uh, the Saudis. Uh, The enemy was a Republican uh, uh, revolt supported by Nasser the Russians were involved on the republican side as well uh just an example of of how this worked uh, the how these alliances worked a third set of alliances were with uh minorities non-arab minorities the kurds of northern iraq are uh, one case in point and a very re- relatively successful one uh to this day in their semi independence in northern iraq uh they uh uh, they have a warm place in their hearts for the alliance they had uh, with Israel because we saw ourselves as two non-Arab Middle East minorities fighting for self-determination. Uh, the, uh, the fiasco of the, the real fiasco of the doctrine was the alliance with the Maronites in Lebanon, uh, which led to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Uh, and, a, so soured the Israeli security community on the notion of alliances with other minorities in the region that uh, since since then, I mean, we finally got out by the skin of our teeth in the, in the year 2000, and since then, uh, we have had no such alliances with uh, Middle East minorities because the sense in Israel, of course the Maronites have their own narrative, but the sense in Israel is that we were betrayed uh, by our allies. So that's it in a nutshell.
1: Let's talk about the Kurdish example. You, I think, had some involvement. Actually, you mentioned two things you were involved with. One was the uh, to do with the dam. Tell, tell us about that one.
2: Uh, at one point, uh, I was, uh, by now I'm in the Mossad, uh, f- uh, fairly beginner's level, uh, uh, doing staff work and uh, working opposite the Kurds, among other people. And... Um, anyone who knows the geography of northern Iraq knows that that's that's where the water flows south from, okay? And uh, these are high mountains that get a lot of snow in the winter, Uh, and basically uh, Baghdad's drinking water comes from uh, from the north. The British, uh, when they were there, after Sykes-Picot in the 20s and 30s, built an impressive set of dams uh, to make all of this work. And the Kurds, came to us and said uh, let's blow up the dams. Uh, that's a good way to fight the, the, the Saddam Hussein regime in, in Iraq. Uh, Saddam wasn't then president, but he was the, uh, the power behind the throne. And, uh, and it was my job to go figure out what this meant and was it possible. So I had to go and talk to people in the Israeli Water Authority who understood dams. I couldn't tell them why, although they could probably guess. Uh, and uh, ask them, I pointed to two dams, uh, Edir Bandi Khan and Dukan. You can find them on the map today as well. Uh, one of them is kind of in creaky shape and the US is, has brought in some Italian experts to try to uh, hold it together because otherwise it really will collapse and flood Baghdad. But what I discovered is that you'll put Baghdad under a meter of water and you will uh, kill, if you blow it up, uh, you can blow it up. It's doable. Uh, And you will kill a lot of innocent people and you will deprive Iraq of water for irrigation. Uh, And so we thought about this for a minute and then sent, sent a cable to the a Mullah Mustafa Barazani, the, the Kurdish leader. Uh, forget it. Uh, we're not going into this. That was an example of the kind of uh, of the kind of. But of course, at the same time, we all we had throughout for for a couple of decades, we had usually a three man mission on the ground in northern Iraq, uh, entering thanks to our Iranian uh, strategic allies. Uh, and always including a doctor for humanitarian aid, which is a very important uh, part of this, uh, and training and arming uh, the Peshmerga, the the Kurdish uh, militia. You
1: mention in the book that there was a lot of sympathy for the Kurds, that there's a sense of brotherhood between non-Arab minorities. I found that, I can believe that that's a feeling, but if that is the case, why not the similar level of support for the Kurds, far more of them, in Turkey, or the Kurds in Iran, who are also
2: living under awful conditions in both countries. Oh, I mean, this is where you get into realpolitik, okay? Uh, We could not work with the Kurds of northern Iraq if it weren't for the readiness of the Iranians to let us in. We had to enter via Iran. Iran's Turkish... A Kurdish issue then as now was relatively quiescent, unlike in Turkey. And it was out of the question to ask the Turks, also our allies in Trident, to let us in via Turkey because they were much more sensitive uh, to the Kurdish issue. Uh, uh, And we we had, I mean, look, I began by saying we're surrounded by a ring of hostile Arabs. It's not as if the people in the periphery were angels. They weren't, they had their own interests. They were not, for the most part, democratically run countries. They had huge human rights problems, including the status of their Kurds. And we had to go with the flow if we were going to, in any way, create a sense that we are not alone and that we have some uh, allies on the periphery. But, mind you, problematic allies. I suppose what I'm saying is that you do make quite a play of
1: the sense of solidarity with the Kurds of Iraq. And if, if that was real, because, I mean, do you think the Kurds of Iraq were better off for those types of military operations that were going on? I mean, there were Kurds in Iraq who also supported the regime. It's not as if it was a one-sided conflict, even between the Kurds. I mean, really, does anyone benefit from that level of military support in those types of situations
2: look let me focus on the on two cases which from the israeli standpoint in retrospect they were positive experiences one was the kurds of northern iraq the other was the animists and christians of south sudan okay in both cases they were horribly persecuted by the arab leaderships of their country in baghdad and khartoum respectively uh, a, 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 I mean we, we saw later on Saddam Hussein using chemical weapons on the Kurds. They were horribly persecuted. Yes, they were riven by their own schisms and conflicting loyalties. They had no past uh, history of, uh, of uh, beh- behaving like a sovereign or, or semi-sovereign people aspiring to sovereignty. But they were genuinely suffering. And our relationship with the Kurds began when uh, a then head of the Mossad, Meir Amit, this is in the early 60s, meets with a, a, a Kurdish uh, representative in Paris uh, and comes back and says to, to Golda Meir, who was then foreign minister, he says, look, these people don't have enough money to make themselves a cup of tea and Golda says, take $100,000, and $100,000 for Israel at that time was a lot of money, all right, and give them something. Now, a, given the fact that we are in a permanent war with our Arab neighbors, there's a natural sympathy for other peoples in the region who are also at, in permanent war with their Arab neighbors, and, and who don't even have the luxury of all these real politic considerations of, uh, do I help the Israelis? Do I not help the Israelis? But they came to us in a very genuine way, saying, look, you Jews have achieved self-determination in your historic homeland in the middle of the Arab world, all right? We want the same thing. We deserve the same thing. Will you help us? And we had good reason to help them.
1: And so the Kurds of Turkey,
2: because Turkey is more important to you as a peripheral nation,
1: wouldn't uh, get the same. To the rest
2: has. of my recollection, the Kurds of Turkey never even came to us, nor did the Kurds of, of Iran. Uh, but yes, Turkey was more important because Turkey as a strategic ally threatened Syria. Let me just uh, take you back here for a minute. Uh, uh, it, it, it's rather interesting whereas the, the, the relationship with Iran in the 60s and 70s was warmer and had a lot more intelligence and, uh, uh, and strategic cooperation content, it, it, it was with Turkey, with whom we found ourselves discussing on several occasions launching a joint war against Syria. Well, you see Turkey is Syria to Syria's north, Israel is to the south uh this reached operational planning stages. Um, and, uh, and again in the 90s, after the end of the periphery doctrine when Israel had far more, more far-reaching regional, uh, uh, regional reach um, and could, uh, could dialogue with Arab countries from the core as well as peripheral countries, once again, uh, the Turks were prepared to talk about, to us about a joint military operation against Syria. That never happened with Iran. But yes, in this case, you have no choice. These are your neighbors. These are the people you're dealing with. You have to ignore not only their Kurds, something much harder for Israelis to do, and that's to bow to the Turkish demand that we not make a fuss over the Armenian Genocide. Which to this day is a hot button issue in Israel. In fact, when you had conferences
1: in Jerusalem, you uninvited Armenians and didn't let them attend, even though the word genocide was coined to describe exactly their
2: experience. You're, you're quite right. It's a it was and is a hot button issue. It's much easier today, given the nature of the of the government in Turkey under Erdogan. It's in effect a kind of Turkish version of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's, it's, it's less friendly toward Israel, uh, but nevertheless, there are huge considerations when it comes to little Armenia, sandwiched between Turkey, a former and maybe future ally on the one hand, and Azerbaijan, which is part of our new periphery allies, an important country because it borders on Iran.
1: When you're supporting an insurgent group within a country, isn't it inevitable that the Arabs, of Iraq, whether they despise Saddam or not, would come to the conclusion that Israel is a hostile country that simply is not interested in peace. I mean, you yourself were involved in successfully blowing up oil. I mean, not you, you helped the Kurds uh, blow up uh, an oil well, I believe. The natural response of ordinary people must be. To think of Israel as, as
2: simply a hostile country in the region. Look, you're pointing to it pointing to a kind of vicious circle here. Israel reached out to the periphery. A periphery countries like Turkey and Iran, the minorities reached out to us. But we reached out to the periphery because of Arab hostility. Because war after war, they would not come to terms with the existence of Israel. We're making preparations constantly for the next war. We're talking about an era in which uh, South Al Arab, the the Nasser's radio station in Cairo, daily broadcasts, throw the Jews into the sea. Now, yes, when I go, when I'm writing the periphery book, and I now have access to Arab countries, I can go, I can talk to Egyptians, I can talk to Jordanians, even Saudis and uh, Syrians and Lebanese, uh, and I ask them, well, what did you think of this periphery doctrine? They said, yes, well, it just, it just, drove home our, what we were saying, our own narrative, which was that you're, you're hostile. You're a hostile implant in the region, and you're being all the more hostile by making common cause with our enemies. So there was a vicious circle here. What, but let me just, if I may, jump to the conclusion, okay? Because there were Israelis who pointed to exactly what you said, and said periphery doctrine is a mistake. We have to be reaching out to our Arab neighbors. Uh, in, be, in talking to these same Arab neighbors and Arab strategic thinkers and writers uh, decades later, uh, and hearing, yes, we this made you more hostile. But the conversation would lead me inevitably to the conclusion that the periphery relationships. Uh, persuaded them that they can't beat us and that they're going to have to come to terms with us. And I would, and I make the argument that the the real success of the periphery relationship is sending that deterrent message to the extent that a, 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 a leader, a, a very fine strategic thinker like Egyptian President Anwar Sadat came to the conclusion he's gonna to have to find a way to get along with us. So it contributed ultimately to peace. Those of us who follow this closely,
1: one of the difficulties, is maybe I don't follow it closely enough, is is the claim and counterclaim. So your claim now that NASA said daily to throw the Jews into the sea, you know, in the early 70s, a British politician offered a reward to anyone who could, quote, find a, a direct quote of NASA saying that. He didn't end up paying out. The... You say in the book yourself, before NASA, admittedly, but that in forty-eight, Egypt said it would recognise Israel, if and it was a big if. I think they wanted um, a portion of the Negev. What, you, what year are you talking about? You're talking 40, forty-eight. It's in, okay. it's in, your, in your book. You, Syria, I think, in forty-nine, says they'll take three hundred refugees, three hundred yeah, thousand refugees. And they want half of the Galilee. So there are these things going forward. Writing just today, I think Yuri Avneri, the um, old man of the Israeli peace movement, actually fought against NASA. He recounts a story of NASA seven years before Sadat, making it known that he was prepared to basically have that same agreement. So we get these, you know, it is difficult having these things, but... It certainly looks, or some people claim, who seem well-connected, that the
2: Arabs were trying to come to compromises. In return for half the Galilee and half the Negev, thank you very much. We, we said, I mean, we never even agreed to dialogue with them about this, but look... But know, d- d- just on that, one of the parts of Israeli
1: historiography is they say, look, we accepted partition. Israel we, accepted. Yeah, yes. we accepted partition. Well, at that point saying half their Negev or some of the Galilee it, I mean if the Palestinians who made up 1.5 million people against 500 Jewish immigrants in forty-seven, were expected 000. were expected to take less than half of the land then it's not unreasonable to say that that was also a missed opportunity in forty-eight,
2: look We can go on and on. There are different versions of the history. Uh, As someone whose formative professional years were spent in the intelligence community, uh, I believe very strongly that Arab hostility was Arab hostility. They didn't want us around. They could not come to terms with us. And they believed it was possible to get rid of us in one way or another. Uh, That's the Ben-Gurion school, if you like. Uh, There were other schools of thought, Moshe Sharet, who uh, uh, thought he could uh, dialogue uh, with the Arabs and reach different outcomes. Uh, I'm looking at the periphery doctrine, which is something I worked with very intensely, believing very strongly that this was contributing to Israel's security by sending a strong deterrent message, and I, that, I think maybe I can illustrate it, if I may, with a one additional anecdote. A July 4th, 1976, uh, the Entebbe operation, which the older members of the audience presumably remember because it was known worldwide, uh, an Air France plane taking off from Tel Aviv had been hijacked, and uh, the, the hijackers were from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a Marxist-Palestinian organization, in cahoots with Idi Amin of Uganda, who used to be our periphery buddy and it turned against us, uh, landed the plane at uh, the Entebbe airport in, uh, in Uganda. I was involved in this and my involvement was uh, I was, at the same time there was a meeting of the Organization of African States in Mauritius. And I was there undercover, not as an Israeli, but as, as someone else from a Western origins observing uh, what was going on uh, as a kind of as a journalist, uh, and when a, a, the news came across was broadcast by the BBC on July fourth that Israeli commandos had rescued all of the hostages uh, killed the uh, the, uh, the hostage takers and were flying back to Israel, I realized my job now is to Go talk to the Arab representatives, uh, Arab countries in Africa, from Egypt to Morocco, uh, and what's their reaction? Uh, Get very fresh reactions from them. And I went first to talk to the Moroccans. Now, Morocco is not on any of my maps. It's just too far uh, to the west to appear there, but it was a periphery ally. And I approached some Moroccan diplomats who presumably have nothing to do with the strategic clandestine relationship with Israel. I say, have you heard about Entebbe? No, I relate to them what happened. And I said, what are you, what's your response? And they say to me, you have any Israeli friends? And I said, a few. And they say, well, tell them well done. Uh, we applaud what they did. I then go to the Egyptian delegation much more important from the terms of Israel's overall strategic interests. And it's a delegation of generals, all in uniform. They hadn't heard either. And I tell this to them, and they are in a state of total shock. This is three years after the Yom Kippur War, which according to their narrative, then as now, they won. And... They simply couldn't believe the Israelis could strike in the heart of Africa, and Uganda is the heart of Africa, the sources of the Nile, there's sus- the sustenance of, of Egypt, uh, and pull off an operation like this. Uh, and when I got back uh, to Mossad headquarters in Tel Aviv, I was called in by the head of the Mossad, General Kofi Haka, and he says, well, tell me, what, re- what did you hear after the operation, and I told this to them, and he said, okay, the Moroccans know our capabilities. The Egyptians thought they won the last war, and they can't believe that we could do a thing like this, and this will have a profound effect on their strategic calculations. It was a matter of uh, about a year later that Sadat uh, took the initiative, and of course, he knew that we were already in secret negotiations with Egypt, with Sadat's people, and within a year we were making peace with Sadat. I have no doubt whatsoever that that, the the way we could exploit our uh, ties in the periphery, and in in this case it meant with Ethiopia and with Kenya, in order to pull off an operation like that, uh, influence Egyptian calculations about coexistence with Israel. Uh, So in my view, and it, whether you buy into the Ben-Gurion approach or the Sharet approach, uh, in my view, the, the ability to broadcast to our neighbors that we have powerful friends, friends I- indeed sitting on the sources of the Nile River, made a very positive contribution uh, to whatever modicum of peace and strategic cooperation we've established with our neighbors. And I say modicum because it's, Far from what one would call the normalization. We could talk for a lot more on this topic. I think it's we'll shift gear and talk more
1: about the Israel-Palestine aspect of it. In your book, you talk about what you call a nightmare scenario, which is the one-state solution. Not
2: solution, reality.
1: The it's state, not a solution. Well, let's, let's talk about, you know, because the one-state proposal has an interesting history. It goes from quite prominent but very left wing Zionists like Magnus, who set up the Hebrew University, um, Uber. Albert Einstein, Martin uh, Buber. Yeah, yeah, Buber, Martin Buber, of course. All liked, had the vision of a binational state. And now the Palestinians are talking about a binational state, a state of all of its citizens.
2: Some Palestinians. Some Palestinians. It's not the official uh, position no, by any that's means. that's right.
1: And, and particularly Palestinians outside of Palestine, I think. What is it that horrifies you about? I mean, in one sense, it's already a reality. Israel occupies the West Bank with, I've forgotten, is it 4 million? 2.5 million. West Bank. West Bank, 1.8 million
2: in Gaza which most of the world believes Israel occupies, Israel doesn't. Which, which we've decided we no longer occupy, but that's, that's an, uh, an argument we have with the world, yeah. So,
1: as you say, it kind of already exists, except it is completely undemocratic, there's no democratic input from a large part of the population. What
2: is it that worries you about the scenario? First of all, this is not a static scenario. I place us on a slippery slope, moving to increasingly toward a one-state reality, by no means a solution, but a reality, uh, which will under present and, and for near-term foreseeable circumstances uh, be either not democratic, that is, Palestinians will have fewer rights, fewer national rights, uh, or no longer a Jewish Zionist state because everyone will have equal rights uh, and this will uh, have to be understood as a, some sort of bi-national uh, reality. Uh, now, uh, there are very few Israelis who want this. There are some, on the far right and the far left.
0: Uh, oh, the
2: president, I think. Hmm? The president. The president, uh, President Rivlin, is a Democrat. And But he's also someone who believes that we have to control the greater land of Israel um, and ostensibly wants to give Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, not Gaza. Nobody puts Gaza on the map of what's under Israeli control anymore. Nobody in Israel. Uh, a, a, so he says they'll, have, well, they'll all have equal rights. And when confronted with the prospect that this will be the end of Zionism, because Israel will no longer be the the home of the, the national home of the Jewish people, he begins hedging his bets. Well, Palestinians will have to qualify, they'll have to pass some voting standards, uh, uh, he, he quite frankly doesn't know how to work his way out of this. And in any case, in our system, he has no constitutional power to do anything about it, which is one of the reasons he was no, elected but it's, president. It's,
1: it's interesting that someone from the right, like him, yeah. is talking on, those, no, no, on look, that element. Have,
2: you have, and I outline this in the book, among the right, which is the dominant political element in Israel, which is today the political mainstream, you have a huge variety of points of view as to how to solve this issue, how to deal with it. Uh, Rivlin is one extreme. You can find fascists at another extreme who just want to kick people out. Uh, you can find others who say uh, uh, they'll, uh, they'll be under Israeli rule, but they'll have Jordanian citizenship and vote in Jordan. They don't bother to ask the king of Jordan whether so, he's interested in having claim. more Palestinians on his voter list. Uh, uh, you have uh, one who's a very prominent columnist for the Jerusalem Post, Caroline Glick. She's my favorite because she says... Well, all the democ- demographers are wrong. Palestinian demographers, Israeli demographers, international demographers, there are 2.5 million Palestinians in the West Bank, there are only 1.5 million. But she knows. This, this always fascinates me,
1: this idea that because someone is Jewish, like I could take, make the right of return, an Iraqi Jew from, well, let's take a Syrian Jew now. I mean, a Syrian a Palestinian can't go back to where they came from but they surely have as much in common with an Iraqi Jew now living in Israel. they the same language, the same music, the same culture, basically. The
2: Iraqi Jew living in Israel. You're talking about his grandchildren who don't know Arabic anymore. They have to be yeah, but taught that, Arabic.
1: That, that, that itself is, is a tragedy that, that's happened. But what I'm saying is that that the saying that a, a, a recent Russian immigrant has is somehow inherently more in common with anyone who describes themselves as Jewish or can have the right of return. For instance, my children could go to Israel and live there. Even though they have two passports already, they could also have an Israeli one because they have one Jewish grandparent. The Palestinian in Syria at the moment, and you write about it in the book, can't go back to where their parents came from, even possibly themselves in Israel, because you're we so terrified of this idea of the demographic threat. In any other country, in, in Vienna, where my grandparents came from, they did talk about the demographic threat. And they, they were worried about Jews, too many of them. I don't really understand, what. why is it a Palestinian, just because they're a Palestinian, a threat to a democracy?
2: Not just because they're a Palestinian. Israel is the, is the nation state of the Jewish people, it's the only one in the world. It, we consider ourselves a Jewish people, not just a Jewish religion. This is an issue of profound discussion with the diaspora, with many diasporas, and I fully understand that there are plenty of Jews in the diaspora who have a hard time getting a grip on this, okay? Uh, we were created, we have more international legitimacy as the homeland of the Jewish people than virtually any country in the world has international legitimacy because we were created by the League of Nations, the Balfour Declaration, and the United Nations, okay? The United Nations offered the Palestinians a state. They and all their neighbors turned it down in 1948 and said, no, we prefer to destroy the Jewish state and we do not accept this offer. And they have continued ever since to turn down offers of a state But now, if we look at that first offer. If 5 million, first of all, you talk about the re- Palestinian refugees in Syria. According to UNRWA statistics, there are over 5 million such refugees. Only about the last count I did was 5, 6 years ago only about 40,000 were born in what's today Israel. We're talking about the great grandchildren of people who fled, and let's be honest with ourselves, in some cases were expelled in the course of the 48 war, because that's what happens in war. How Refugees many, are created, look.
1: How what, many generations do you think you need to go back in our
2: lives, in our families, to get ourselves back the, to Israel? The point I'm making is that the Arab world made sure from forty eight till today, through UNRWA and other devices, not to absorb these people and to create a situation where the a great grandchild will hold up a key and say, I have the right of return to Israel. And why? Because if that person has the right of return to Israel, then the state of Israel was born in sin in nineteen forty eight. Because all other countries solved their refugee issues differently, except for the Arabs. And the Palestinians don 't you think and an if extent- the State of Israel was born in sin, then there 's no justification for our Z- existence and I, as a Zionist and most Israelis, do not accept this and reject it I, I would disagree in the
1: sense that I think every colonial settler state, and I include Israel and that you may not, but new zealand america australia we 're all born in sin. I take that for granted you have these unequal forces when you say the Palestinians refused the figures I gave before, 1.5 million people being expected to take less than half for a population of 500,000. In hindsight, I'm sure they wish they had taken it, so do I, but it seems utterly unrealistic to expect anyone to accept that.
2: Did you know that the Peel Commission in 1937 offered the Palestinians 82% of the land? Did you know that the United Nations in 1947 offered them 52% of the land but, and it goes on and on and on but never they, ending they, because because the purpose of the Arab insistence on the refugee right of return is to continue to delegitimize Israel in order not to come to terms with it this is this is the logic behind it look jeremy okay. my, that, that is a statement. my mother whom I mentioned in the border debate, by the way, some of you may remember the village of Seged in Hungary. My mother fled a, the province of Galicia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire with the outbreak of World War I in 1914. She was a refugee. She got to Vienna, she was recognized as a refugee. Does that give me rights? Do I have a right to go back and take the family mill on a little stream somewhere in Galicia? doesn't give me rights, and I'm a first, I'm a second generation, I, if you like, refugee. I, I this hope. is a ridiculous discussion. I, and I, 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 I and don't the think Arabs is. have taken it ad absurdum, ad absurdum. <laughs> And the point I make in the book is that the Palestinian refugees in the Yarmouk camp, next to Damascus, they used to be about 400,000 strong, now there are a few thousand left, okay? Their origins are from the Galilee, northern Israel. The people in Yarmouk, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, uh, uh, still claiming the right of return. They have now been swept up in a wave of 12 million Syrian refugees scattered all over the Middle East. A, it's time, it's high time to to change that. It, that Everybody dealing with Middle East refugees change the concept and recognize that this is a huge problem. You have Palestinians, you have Syrians, you have Iraqis, you have Kurds, you have Yemenis. There's absolutely, Sudanese, oh, absolutely. no we- end of it. And it's time to stop dealing separately with the Palestinian refugee issue. UNRWA was created exclusively from the, for them. Everybody else has the High Commission of Refugees. It's time to bring this all together and put paid to the whole refugee right of return issue in the Israeli-Palestinian context. Do because you it's do the you main, It is one of the main obstacles to being it, able to resolve anything. It is in this certainly a, a major obstacle. You
1: mentioned that you couldn't go back. My ancestry came from Austria more recently than yours. It was the Second World War. It was the Holocaust that brought my family here.
2: And your family and was absorbed, wasn't it? Absolutely. That's what—that's what's done with refugees of war, except in our case. Ex- although shouldn't. we absorbed the same number of Jews fleeing Arab countries in the early 1950s, we never even called them refugees. We never registered them as refugees. There's a whole other debate
1: around that and to, to what extent that... Israel contributed in some cases to those people, like the Iraqi case, where some Iraqi Jews in Israel yeah, now they're, claim...
2: They're lining up to go back to Iraq, aren't they? John? Well,
1: <laughs> that, that tells us something about intervention as much as anything else. We're coming up to question time shortly, so I think I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask one more, and then we will um, move on. BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions international movement now, very controversial. Is there any any element of it that you support? Is there, by putting pressure on Israel, you support a two-state solution, you want to see a two-state solution. Do you
2: support some aspects of the BDS movement? I don't support boycott, okay? We were boycotted uh, for decades after the... uh, the State of Israel came into existence in 1948 by an, an organized Arab boycott, which was respected by, well, and honored by all kinds of international firms. Uh, it just made us stronger, by the way. It just gave us more indigenous uh, manufacturing and, and agricultural capabilities. Uh, but I don't believe that boycott is going to change anything in the very, very complex and somber Israeli-Palestinian reality. It's not going to stop this slippery slope. Now, BDS, there are some who want to boycott only settlements and their goods, and others who want, who want the, to boycott the entire state of Israel and others who are violently anti-Zionist. Uh, on the other hand, there are a few Zionists involved in BDS. They ju- they're just against the settlements. Uh, I would argue, and I don't, I don't, let me note, I don't pretend to be an expert on BDS. I do pretend to know something about how Israel interacts with the international community. I would argue that BDS is much more of an issue outside of Israel, for example, in cam- on campuses uh, in the Western world. Much more of an issue outside of Israel than it is inside of Israel, uh, and it will, by n- it, under no circumstances is it going to be decisive in deciding the outcome of the Israeli-Palestinian Slippery Slope. And if you watch our Prime Minister, who bears a large portion of responsibility for the Slippery Slope, but who is also uh, rather astute politically, certainly, and cautious internationally, uh, he is building up Israel's alternatives to any sort of boycott coming from primarily Europe, uh, because the United States is, is and uh, neither Trump nor Clinton are going to adopt BDS. It brings us a sense to the new periphery you've been speaking of, even Saudi beyond Arabia, beyond the new China. periphery. I mean, we're no longer isolated, okay? We have strategic relations with Russia, with China, with India. Uh, we have growing strategic relations even with Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Jordan. None of them are in the slightest bit interested in BDS. Some of them pay lip service to the Palestinian issue. They are, the other Arabs are thoroughly fed up with the Palestinians, never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I, I mentioned a few of them in terms of percentages. Uh, and uh, all of these give Israel, along with the United States, which is still Israel's primary uh, international ally and friend, all of these, I would argue, render the BDS movement uh, more of a uh, uh, an uh, uh, an issue for hand wringing in the diaspora than in Israel itself
1: and let's uh, give yossi a big thanks thank you our
0: 2016 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark you can find a range of other talks interviews and discussions on iTunes on SoundCloud or on our website writersfestival.co.nz